0: missed at this point for Children's Church. Lisa's getting them and taking them out. I forgot to uh, just put one name on the list. I don't know how severe it is, but Janie's not here this morning. um, So Lydia's filling in for her downstairs, but she has a sore throat of some sort going on that's been going on a few days. So just be praying for her that it doesn't become anything serious and that it kind of recovers here quickly as well. So just be praying for her, but Um, We are going to continue in our Gospel of John series. Uh, We're going to jump into chapter 14 this week. So we're going to start chapter 14. Let's go ahead and pray as we get started here. Father, help us to remember that you and you alone, through Christ, saves us. That there's really nothing we bring to the table accept our sin. May that overwhelm us with thankfulness this morning. And understanding that you were obligated by no reason to save us, but in love you chose to do so. And we all sit here this morning only by your grace. Use your word and your spirit to speak to us. Have your word impressed upon our hearts that we might love you more and live lives that honor you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When someone comes to you and says, I struggle with depression. Or, I'm fighting it with anxiety. Or maybe they can't explain it in words, but it just seems that they're deeply troubled by life. What answers do you have for them? Is there any hope? Is there any way out of that struggle? Our world offers a variety of options, right? Talk therapy. Medication to stabilize your brain, substances that numb the pain, relationships that distract you from your struggles in life. But we all know those aren't satisfying answers, are they? So what would you tell someone with a troubled heart? Or what do you do when you have a troubled heart? This morning, as we continue through Jesus talking with the disciples on his last night here, We see Jesus address the troubled hearts of his disciples, and he has an answer for them. My desire for us this morning is that we will hear the words of our Savior and our Lord and preach them to ourselves, and then we will also share them with others and find ourselves with hearts that are not bothered, troubled, anxious, depressed, By the circumstances of life. So let's go ahead and read our passage. We're in John chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 1. John 14, starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now right from the beginning of this passage, Jesus' point is quite clear, isn't it? Verse 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And based on what we've just seen in our past few weeks, it makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus just revealed to his disciples that Judas, who just left the room, is going to betray him, right? They might not understand that it's Judas yet, but he at least revealed betrayal is about to happen. And then Peter makes these claims of devotion towards Jesus, and Jesus tells him what? Actually, by the end of all of this, you're going to have denied me three times before the rooster crows, right? If that's true, if one of them's going to betray him, if Peter's going to deny him, how bad is it going to be for the rest of them, right? So we have here from the get-go the reality of troubled hearts. It's really no surprise, is it, that they're troubled, Jesus told them all this was going to happen, and on top of it, what else did he say? Oh yeah, I'm leaving, and you don't get to go along. You don't get to be with me anymore. So we combine all these things together, and we can see how you start to piece together a very fearful set of circumstances. Betrayal, denying Jesus, not being with Jesus. But Jesus tells them what? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, at first glance, this seems a little bit hypocritical. Because if you look back to chapter 13, verse 21, look what happens to Jesus. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So Jesus speaks of the betrayal, and he is troubled by it, but now we come to verse 1 of chapter 14, and he tells his disciples, but you don't be troubled in your hearts. How is that fair, right? Wait, 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 wait. Jesus, you're allowed to be troubled about the betrayal, but we're not allowed to be troubled, that we're not going to be with you anymore? But while the same word troubled might be used, we have to realize that they're troubled for different reasons. Jesus is troubled because he knows what's about to happen and he's going to go through with it. He trusts the Father's will and he knows what he's going to have to do. The disciples are troubled because they're hearing this and they're like, we don't want that. Right? Even what we saw from Peter last week, what did he say? He said, no, Lord, I'm not staying behind. I'm going with you and I'm going to die with you. I have my own set of plans. And so they're troubled because they're not trusting the plans that Jesus has just revealed to them. So in that sense, their troubled hearts are wrong. Maybe even sinful, if you want to say that. Yet Jesus' troubled heart is never sinful. But that's because he knows what's about to happen and he's going to go through with it. Their hearts, the disciples, are resisting God's purposes in Jesus' leaving, leaving them with troubled hearts. But this isn't a unique reality to the disciples, is it? Anybody in here ever had a troubled heart? Ever experienced moments when you, feel, when you feel like Jesus just isn't near to you? That's what his disciples are troubled by here, isn't it? Jesus isn't going to be with them anymore. Have you ever looked around at our world and felt fearful or anxious about what's going on, and it seems like God's just nowhere to be found? Just look at the last two years, right? Every channel you turn on, every social media website, every radio you flip on, and what is there? Fear, 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 and with no mention of what? God. God. There's no mention of God is near to you. God is in this. God is in the situation working out something for his purposes. Because our ungodly world, unbelieving world, wants us to be troubled by our reality. They want us to think God is absent in all of it. But not Jesus. Jesus doesn't want us to be troubled by our circumstances. Instead, he looks at his own disciples and says what? And we can hear the same words to ourselves. Let not your hearts be troubled. But how do we do that? How do we not let our hearts be troubled? Well, you don't even have to get out of verse 1 before the antidote for a troubled heart is revealed. What does Jesus say? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, many of these disciples already believe in God, right? They already believe in Yahweh. Many of them were raised in the Jewish culture, raised to trust Yahweh. But now there's a specific call to not just trust God from the Old Testament, but to trust who? Jesus, who's standing in front of them. To trust Jesus the way they claim that they trust Yahweh. So what's the antidote for a troubled heart? Faith trust, belief. Jesus reveals here that faith thwarts troubled hearts. But it's not just faith in anything, is it? It's not just like some cliche answer you just throw on whatever problem that somebody comes up with, right? It's not just telling someone, well, just have faith and it'll all work out. It's a very specific faith. It's a faith that sets our eyes on one person. It sets our hearts on Jesus and on him alone. Consider that for a moment. Do you trust? Right? Trust. Think of what that word means. Do you trust Jesus in the midst of your circumstances? Because the correlation that's presented here, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, trust in Jesus, tells us what? What? that those who take their eyes off of Jesus end up being the ones who have troubled hearts. The disciples feel like they can't trust Jesus unless he is physically with them. So their hearts are beginning to be troubled in the fact that Jesus is no longer going to be physically near. They're scared, distressed about what life is going to look like without him. And it's no different in our own lives, is it? When we find ourselves consumed, obsessed with social media, surfing on our phones, watching TV, doing our hobbies, all apart from having our hearts meditate on Jesus, what do we end up with? Troubled hearts. If you really think about it, and if you're really honest, I think you would say that when your heart has been the most anxious, the most depressed, is when you are thinking about Jesus and trusting him the least. The less you are meditating on Him, the less you are trusting Him, the less your faith is increasing in Him, is the more you find yourself troubled. The more you find yourself anxious, the more you find yourself depressed. Whatever word you want to throw in there of what you're going through. It's like Peter walking on the water with Jesus, isn't it? When does he start to sink? When he stops looking. When he stops trusting. He becomes troubled by the circumstances around him rather than setting his eyes on Jesus. It's the same thing with us. Now the disciples had seen and heard enough by this time to trust in Jesus, haven't they? Right? They've been with him this entire ministry. They know they should trust Jesus. But and even though they don't, or at least aren't fully at this point, Jesus gives them two reasons of what they should trust. Not what he's done so far, but instead, what's going to happen now. As he leaves them, departs from them physically as he heads to the cross, but then eventually, completely, as he ascends into heaven. He gives them two things that are things he, the things they can trust in. So first, they are to trust in Christ's preparation. Trust in Christ's preparation. And we see this show up in verse 2. He's not leaving them without a purpose. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So Christ is leaving them, not in vain, but to go prepare a place for them. Now, don't get bogged down here, because I think our temptation when we read this verse is to think all of this is taking place in heaven, right? And rightly so to some extent, right? Because what does he say? right? My Father's house, there are many rooms. That's clearly talking about heaven. And so when Jesus says, would I I go to prepare a place for you, we're thinking Jesus is in heaven preparing our place. But think about it. What is Jesus doing right now that's preparing your place for you? Do you imagine Jesus like in your heavenly room just making your bed for you right now, dusting off the bookshelves? I think it starts much earlier than that. What Jesus is saying is, I go to prepare a place for you right tonight. This night when I leave you, what I'm about to do prepares the way, the place for you, the access for you to even get to my Father's house. Right. So even if you think Jesus is doing something right now in heaven, preparing your place for you, I don't see much evidence of that in Scripture. What is Jesus doing right now, other than interceding on our behalf? to God the Father. I don't see anywhere else in Scripture this idea of rooms, that Jesus is actually doing something in the room. I think when he talks about preparation here, what he's saying is, I'm going to the cross to prepare access for you to your room. So don't jump too quick to the heaven thing. Let's first say Jesus is saying, trust my preparation, which means what? You have to trust the cross and trust his resurrection. Even if you like the idea that Jesus is currently decorating your room for you in heaven, we all have to at least agree, right, that we first need access to that room. And the only way we get access to that room is by the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Amen? So we trust his preparation. And think about this, how real this is for our own lives. When we set our minds and our hearts on the reality of our sin, and then we think about Christ's payment for our sin, when we meditate on our dead souls being brought to life as we share in Christ's resurrection, when we dwell upon Christ's preparation made for us to have a home in heaven, doesn't that relieve your troubled heart at all? That the circumstances of the world around you, whatever they may be, no matter how difficult they may be, cannot compare, can't compare to the salvation of your soul by the cross of Christ. The assurance of our salvation, of our access to that room, our access to the Father's house, should alleviate the fears of our hearts as we look around at the worldly problems around us. So that's the first one. We trust Christ's preparation. But look what else he calls his disciples to trust in. In verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So first, trust his preparation. Also, trust his return. One day, Jesus will come again. The whole world of brokenness around us that troubles our hearts, as we look at the fallenness of this world, the entire world will be renewed, a new heavens and a new earth. All people will be judged for their eternity, whether they have believed in Jesus or not. And those of us who do trust in Jesus will be taken to be with him forever. Does that hope of eternity with Jesus fight the troubles of your heart at all? That as we long for that day and are certain that one day that will be our reality, all of a sudden this reality around us becomes much, more, much less authoritative over us. It doesn't mean that this life is insignificant, but since we know this life is not our final reality, this life no longer controls us. We are no longer bound to be held captive by the darkness that we find in this world, by the trouble that we see around us. And one reminder here of our final destination. Notice where Jesus says he will take us in verse 3. I will take you where? To myself, that where I am, you may be also. Notice what Jesus doesn't appeal to here. Guess what? There's going to be roads of gold, right? Or music played on the harp. Or you're going to see that loved one who passed away. Or you're going to be reunited with that favorite pet that you had that passed away. Now Jesus leaves to prepare a place. He will return to take us to that place, but also that we can be with him. That's where our faith has to rest. That's where our hope must rest. We must rejoice in the fact that we get to be with Jesus. If your heart is resting on heaven as a hope of another person or something being there that's not Jesus, you've missed heaven. You've missed the entire point of heaven. He is the substance of our faith. He is the one we should long to be with. But that leaves us with a question, doesn't it? Cross and resurrection, Christ's preparation, happened 2,000 years ago. His return is in the future that will reunite us to him forever. What does that mean for the time in between? What does that mean for you and me sitting here right now? Sure, his disciples can trust that he's preparing a place and that they will one day get there in the future. But what do they do while they wait other than just hope for the future? Look at how he closes it in verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going. There is a path for the disciples to walk while they wait for Jesus to come. There's a path for them to walk while they're waiting for him to take them to this place where they get to finally be with him. It's not just mere waiting around for Jesus to come back, but they're supposed to spend their lives walking in a specific direction that's headed towards that place where Jesus is going. Yet, we see two disciples that are still troubled in their hearts. Two disciples speak up, Thomas and Philip, and they reveal how their hearts are still troubled even after Jesus tells them to trust him. First, we see Thomas and his troubled heart. Now, Thomas's lack of faith revolves around in the fact that he wants to know all the details. If he doesn't understand everything about the final destination, well, then he's not going to be able to trust Jesus fully. Look at his question in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Now think about that for a moment. Has Jesus told them where he is going? He just said what? I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place. I'm going to prepare a place. I'm going to the father's house that has many rooms. He told them, he at least identified where he was going but he didn't identify where in the world that, that actual location of his father's house is. And that's what Thomas is worried about, isn't he? Well, okay, I need the specific coordinates here. Okay? I need the specific coordinates of that end destination. Where is your father's house? Only then will I know the way to get there. But Jesus switches this question. Thomas doesn't need to know the exact location of the Father's house in order to get there. He just needs to walk the path that has been set before him. And look at our well-known verse 6, right? Jesus comes back to him and says, I am the way. He is the path that Thomas must take to get to the Father's house. Jesus is the truth, right? The truth of God revealed to the world and Jesus being God in the flesh. Jesus is the life, the one by which dead souls are made alive. Thomas, if, you're, if you would just set your heart on me, if you would just trust me, you'll make it. You'll make it to the Father's house. doesn't matter where the coordinates are. If you just look at me, if you just trust me. He explains it even more in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. To know Jesus is to know the Father. To see Jesus is to see God himself. As long as your heart is set on Jesus, you have the Father with you, and you will make it to the Father's house to be with him forever. Now, we're all familiar with this verse, aren't we? This verse 6, right, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus being the only way to God. It's exclusive. It's a one-way street. That's it. Do we truly believe that? Think about it for a moment. I hope your answer is yes, by the way. I'm not trying to cast doubt on it. I'm saying in the world we live in, there's all sorts of temptation to not believe that claim. It's been a temptation, especially in our American society, where we start to say, okay, here's the claims that Jesus makes, here's the claims of Scripture, and here's what our Constitution says. And a lot of American Christians have done this with it. Where they said, okay, since the Constitution gives freedom of religion... That means anybody who's seeking after God will make it to God, and Jesus being underneath that is just one of the ways to get to God. We have to remember that just because under our law in America, which I'm thankful for that we get to worship freely, don't hear me wrong here, but just because under the law there's freedom of religion doesn't mean that under God there's freedom of religion. Jesus is abundantly clear here, isn't he? One way one truth, one life. Nobody, nobody gets to the Father. Nobody goes to the Father's house except through Jesus. As you look around at the people around you in this world, do you believe that about them? As you look at your neighbors, the people in this community, the people you work with, do you look at them and say... Jesus is their only way. He's the only chance. And do you remind yourself of this reality. That the only chance you have is because of the grace shown to you in Jesus going to the cross. Don't be like Thomas. Don't think you have to know all the details, all the coordinates of the steps along the way and the final destination. Just know, All you have to do is set your eyes on the way. Believe the one who is the truth and who is the life. Which brings us to our second example of problematic faith. We have Philip and his troubled heart. Now, Philip doesn't ask for the details of the destination, right? So if you think of it like this, maybe Thomas is sitting here looking at Jesus, and Thomas says, I want to look around him and see what's to come. I need the details of that before I can trust this. Philip does the opposite. Philip is looking here and he goes, okay, I need something right here. I need something in front of me in order to look at you and trust you. Look at what he says here in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Philip says, okay, my own terms here. I need more, Jesus. Give me something more right here, right now, so that I can know that you are from the... But what did Jesus just tell him? If you had known me, you would know my Father. If you see me, you do see my Father. And yet Philip is saying, okay, give me more here, and Jesus calls him out, doesn't he? Verse 9. Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then he questions what? His own faith, right? Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his, does his works. How can you make such a request, Philip? Philip? Jesus' words are the Father's words. Same for his works. If you haven't believed that the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father by now, what's it going to take to make you believe? And it's not that Philip isn't a true believer at this point, right? He's not Judas, but his, his faith is extremely weak right now. Thinking, I need more from you, Jesus, if I'm going to really trust you. So Jesus calls him to what he already called him to do. Look at verse 11. Believe me, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Which is essentially what he said back in verse 1, isn't it? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me also. That's what he's saying here. Believe in me. Just trust me, Philip. And then he says what also in verse 11? or else believe on account of the works themselves. He's not telling Philip to put his trust in the works. He's saying, at least just take a look at the works that have already been done and let them lead your eyes up to see that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The works that Jesus has been doing are signposts for Philip, for the disciples, for you and me to say, we now know who Jesus really is. Everything Jesus has been doing has been revealing that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. So ask yourself, where are you making similar requests of Jesus? That your faith in him is going to be limited unless he gives you a certain outcome of your life. Jesus, show me that you're worthy of my trust. Get me that new job. Change this person's heart. Fix this problem that I see in my life. Then I will be satisfied. Then I will trust you like you tell me to. As long as you remain in that mindset, you will still continue to have a troubled heart. To think either you're like Thomas and you think you need all the details of what's to come, or... You're like Philip, and you're like, I just need more evidence right here and now. It's only going to leave you wanting more. Jesus can show you more and more, and you're going to be like, okay, I need one more. Okay, I need one more sign. Okay, I need one more sign. Or, okay, more details, more details, more details before I fully trust you. True faith, trust Jesus. Trust his preparation. Trust that he's coming again to take you to be with him. And it walks the path, walks the way of Jesus, regardless of whether you know the details. Regardless of whether more evidence is being given to you or not. So what does that life look like? What does it look like for someone who trusts in Jesus and who doesn't demand certain things be in place before their faith is increased? And Jesus gives us that here at the end. The life of of an untroubled heart. For those who truly believe in Jesus, who trust that he is the way, and commit, I'm going to follow him no matter what, what does life look like for that person? Jesus begins to tell us in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. The one who believes in Jesus does the works that Jesus does. Now, you might resist that at first, right? Because what do you think of when you think of Jesus' works? You think of all of his miracles, don't you? That's what many of us start to think of, it, and we're like, wait a second, I don't do that. I don't cast out demons. I'm not the one healing the sick. But remember what Jesus just told Philip. The works of the miracles and things like that are the least that he should be looking at. What instead is he supposed to be lifting his eyes up to? What's the greatest work is that you see in Jesus that the Father is in him. So his whole ministry, Jesus' whole time here, is supposed to be pointing us to what? To the Father. That through Jesus we come to the Father. So we should consider that in our own lives. That doing the works of Jesus doesn't mean you're doing all these supernatural miracles, but rather that you're living in a way that displays Jesus so that people watching your life can know how they can get to the Father. That's what it means to do the works that Jesus is doing. His whole point was to point people to the Father. And we do this by our hearts trusting in Jesus, by our words telling others about Jesus, and by our actions imitating Jesus. Those who trust Jesus live like Jesus. And if you think, well, this is way beyond my ability, you're right. You're absolutely right. But there is hope beyond yourself in all of this. In fact, look at the rest of verse 12. And greater works than these he will do, You may be shocked by that statement. We'll get to it in a moment. But look at the reason he makes that statement. Because I am going to the Father. Jesus is going back to a place where he doesn't have to submit himself to the laws of earth. Right Where he's not bound just by being in one physical place at one point in time anymore. Now he's going back to where he reigns over everything. He has authority over all things. Isn't that what he tells his disciples in the Great Commission? Right, All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. So now I send you. And I will be with you always. And we find out next week in our passage that when he goes to the Father, what's he going to do? Send us the Spirit. Meaning, Christ is with each and every one of us every day. So you tell me, which is greater? To be in the position of the disciples, where they have a Jesus physically standing in front of them, who has yet not gone at this point to the cross and been raised three days later, And the only hope of having Jesus with you is to physically follow him. Or us, who after the cross and resurrection, not only have the entire gospel message, but who each and every one of us who have put our faith in Jesus have Jesus with us by the Spirit who has been given to us. Which one's greater? Which situation would you rather be in? I think that's what Jesus is pointing at here. After the cross and resurrection, after the coming of the Spirit, there is a, that is a greater work than what Jesus had been doing up until this point in his ministry. All we have to do is ask. Verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, Verse 14, if you ask me me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, don't get bogged down by the word anything. Don't get caught up in that word, because put your focus on in my name. Jesus tells us to ask him for what we need for what? What did he just tell us we're supposed to be doing? The works that he did, even greater works than that. So we're supposed to be asking in his name for what we need to do those works. This isn't a blanket statement of you just pray for whatever you want and you're going to receive it. It's that those who trust in Jesus want the name of Jesus to be made known to the world around them. So they come to Jesus and they ask for what they need to accomplish that mission. In fact, Jesus gives another clear statement in verse 13. Why will he give us what we ask for? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's what true disciples, true believers, are supposed to be pursuing after with their entire lives and asking for in an ongoing process. So we do. We come to Jesus, at least we're supposed to, to give us what we need. Jesus, give me faith when I have a troubled heart. Jesus, give me relief from the attacks of the devil that seem to keep on coming. Jesus, fill me with the Spirit so that I can fight my own flesh every day when I wake up. Anything you ask, in your pursuit of glorifying the Father, making Christ known, He will do for you. So your heart has no need to be troubled. If you're truly trusting in Jesus and asking that you would do the works like He did, that you would do that which makes Christ known, that you would do that which glorifies the Father, He will answer. So my friends, let me ask you this morning, are your hearts troubled? Is your heart lacking in faith? Do you have a worry or an anxiety or a sadness that's consuming your soul? I offer you the antidote for your troubled heart. Trust in Jesus. Trust in the preparation he has done for you in his death and resurrection. That now you can know God and see God. And trust that one day he's going to return for you. And he will take you to himself. And you will always be with him. And while you wait for that day, trust Jesus that he is the way you're supposed to live your life while you wait. Live like him. Trust that Jesus right now is sitting at the right hand of the Father, even now, just waiting for you to ask. Asking for anything you need in order to pursue his kingdom, to pursue his glory, to pursue his name being made known. So my friends, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust God. Trust Jesus. Let's pray. Father, our request is simple. Give us what we need that we may trust you more. Fill us with your spirit. Protect us from the evil one. Increase our faith. Give us more trust in Jesus. That we may live lives that pursue your kingdom, your glory, the name of Christ being made known. May we set our hope on Jesus trusting what he's done by his death and resurrection, preparing a place for us, and trusting that one day he's going to come and take us to be with him in that place forever. We ask all this in his name. Amen.